Hello and welcome to the first RA Exchange of 2018. I'm Ryan Keeling, RA's editor. We begin the year with a conversation between RA staff writer Matt McDermott and the American artist William Basinski, recorded during our recent Community Connections event series in LA. As you may know, Basinski has written some of the most affecting ambient music of recent times, often recorded using the decades-old methods of tape loops. The most famous examples of this were his four Disintegration Loops albums, which came out in the early 2000s and are considered as masterpieces of the form. These albums helped establish Basinski as an internationally recognized recording artist, but as you'll hear during this conversation, he'd been traversing the nooks and crannies of American counterculture long before that, and he has the stories to show for it. As always, you can hear our full archive of exchanges on residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. The exchange with William Basinski is up next. might not know this, but William used to have a vintage store on Bedford Avenue called Ladybird. Yeah. He purchased his first tape machine, reel-to-reel, at a thrift store in San Francisco. And uh, back in the Texas days, he used to raid the Goodwill as well, right? Oh, God, you kids. The clothes, you're all really glamorous. If we could just, you know... Time machine ourselves back to Denton, 1978, on a Thursday. The Goodwill had bags, 25 cents. Anything in the store you could stuff in it. And the old people wore polyester, and all their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, gorgeous union-made stuff was at the Goodwill. The stuff. Oh, gold lame and real fur and leopard pumps and alligator purses and 40s suits and 50s, you name it. Now, one dress from anything in there is going to be like $18,000 a decade. Give me a fucking break. Tell me about growing up in Dallas. You grew up in the the shadow of mission control. Your father helped with the lunar module. Is that correct? Yeah, that was when I was very young. We were in Houston now, you know, which is where NASA is. And my dad had been in the Navy. And then he, when he got out of the Navy, he was doing work for GE on the Mercury and Gemini programs in Houston. And we moved to this brand new subdivision called Clear Lake City, which is out near NASA, where all the astronauts and their families lived. And it was like mid-century modern utopia for a couple of years. After being in this horrible neighborhood with a very scary and mean and horrifying like Catholic school with these vicious nuns and stuff, just, you know, you want to know where adult diaper wearers come from? Mm. Don't pee your pants in Catholic school as a first grader. <laughs> they put some kid in a diaper in a playpen and marched us all around to look at the baby. Unbelievable. But no, we got out of there. And we were in Clear Lake City for a, a year or two. Like, you know, cul-de-sacs and you know, mid-century modern homes and fancy cars and golf courses. And the school was like all kind of no furniture and stuff and real cute. And the teachers all looked like out of Mad Men. And it was just, wow, so pretty. Delphine Sayrig is your second grade teacher or something, <laughs> you know, third grade. So yeah, we, we walked, I went to church with the astronauts. We were in communion line, my dad tells me, touch that man in front of you. 
I'm like, he takes my hand and pokes this man in the ass, and he turns around, and he knew my dad. And, um, he shook my hand, Neil Armstrong, okay? Yeah. But then shortly after that, right when I had just started to make a best friend there, you know, we moved to Florida, and Dad got a job with a company there that was working on an aspect of the lunar module. Now, I just found this out a couple of years ago, because he never talked about anything. The company was called Radiation Inc. <laughs> Everything in NASA was compartmentalized, you know, in the military. So you only had a need to know. You had a piece of the puzzle. All it was you had to do was do your math, or you know, slide rule, pencil, and then it all got put together. We lived in Florida from about, I think it was about 67, about five years, through end of elementary school and junior high school. And then um, the Moon Project was over and we moved to Dallas. And Dad got a job in some bogus telecommunications company that eventually went out of business when he had five kids in college. and was too old to get a job at 50. So that sucked. It's interesting because your music is somber and reflective, and you are not that. <laughs> you gotta have a sense of humor in this world, oh my god. Otherwise... But you also said at certain points that you weren't the happiest child. No, I, had, I was born wishing I'd either never been born or was dead, so that was my, mostly my two wishes of childhood. Yeah, I had some melancholia. But, you know, I was able to get that out of my body with my work through influences of some very important people that I heard through friends who were record collectors. I was never a record collector. My brother was a record collector when we were growing up. In North Texas State University, all my friends were record collectors, so we just sat around, smoked weed, and did acid and listened to all the newest, coolest stuff. And then Jamie, when I moved to San Francisco, I mean, he's a massive collector of everything. This is our problem now, because we have to move again, and it's a nightmare. He saves coffee bags from, you know, Starbucks, because he likes the silver paper on the inside, and he uses them in his drawings and shit. I throw them out. <laughs> Was it in Denton at the University of North Texas that you, you found your tribe? Yeah, and the other side of the campus. Uh, I met Champagne Harlow, the punk rock goddess of Denton, Texas. She was a 16-year-old, six-foot-tall, natural platinum blonde with this long neck and little round face, translucent skin. The first time I saw her, I was driving my little Volkswagen around the other side of near the art school. I didn't know anyone over there. And there's this creature walking across the street at twilight. It was Champagne Harlow, I didn't know yet. But she had like, at that time, a asymmetrical bob. And she would do her makeup like Jeed Harlow, all painted on, big huge eyes, little black bow lips, tons of fabulous jewelry. Like I said, you could get the Bakelite stuff and everything worth a fortune at the Goodwill for 25 cents on a Thursday. So, and then she had like just shards of black sheer fabric and she always wore fishnets and these amazing wild pear platform stiletto sandals. The wild pear was the shoe shop that wished you were able to shop at and your mom walked you across the mall to, you know, place with the pilgrim shoes. I forget what it was called. But, <laughs> you're looking at wild pair, you know, $19, there's Spanish platform shoes that David Bowie would wear with three colors and, you know, <laughs> okay, she's crossing the street in front of me with a lavender cat on a leash. And I'm like, what? I almost... I almost hit a tree, and I was so clueless. I didn't know any gay people. I didn't. I thought I was the weirdest person on earth. And then 
we didn't have the same class, but in the English building, we had a class that started at the same time that was two doors apart. So I would get there, and people would line up outside of the class and wait till the other class came out so you could go in and not be late, and there she was in her glory. And so I kept an eye out like I do, and I found like a Cadillac V emblem from an old 50s Cadillac somewhere, and somehow I managed to make a necklace out of it. So I thought, this is how I can get to say hello to her. She's so fabulous. So I went up to her and introduced myself. And at that time, my look was sort of hunky-dory. I had like really long hair and would wear really high-waisted 30s pants and maybe tied up old denim shirts and these really beautiful old brown wingtips. She'd seen me too, but anyway, she was super nice. <laughs> She was waiting for me to come and so the spider. She loved the necklace and then she just started talking to me in this stream of consciousness that I didn't know half of what she was talking about. I didn't know what a drag queen was. I didn't know what. She just started spilling out all of this stuff about all her drag queen friends in the art department and blah, 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 and the hairdressers and this and that and makeup and Rocky Horror Picture Show and this and all this. And all so I learned real fast. <laughs> And, and this was also, you know, a period of musical evolution for you as well, where you were classically trained on clarinet and saxophone, but also being in Denton was the time where you decided to study outside the academy. Because I wasn't good enough. <laughs> North Texas State University at that time was a big jazz school, particularly big band jazz. They had the lab band series, and these were the big bands. And the one o'clock lab band was the top band. And a few years before, they had been nominated for a Grammy for their record. And I believe that year, Pat Metheny and Lyle Mays were in the band. So they had some serious musicians there. Musicians that played in big bands that toured, like Woody Herman and all these other bands, would take off a year and go to North Texas just to play music and not have to keep their shoes shined and not, or get stupidity tax, you know. So just go there, smoke weed, and play killer jazz with really great musicians. Well, when I went to audition, you know, I had been playing the tenor for a year and I had learned how to improvise a little bit, play the blues or whatever, but I heard these guys playing and I got so nervous, and I was always a terrible auditioner. I had such nerves. Yeah, I totally fucked up my uh, audition, and I didn't get in any of the bands. There was eight of them. <laughs> so, so I changed my major to composition, and I basically started meeting a bunch of really beautiful and lovely, talented young musicians in the music dorm, the Bruce, it's called Bruce Hall, where I lived, and we would go to the practice rooms and take the real book and just practice and play and I was able to kind of develop my style on the saxophone at that time. One of the most important classes I had was the new music class where we learned about John Cage and all this other stuff that I didn't know was possible. So there was a huge opening of freedom for me that radio, tapes, you know, the guy taught us how to listen. He took us out to the countryside and made us stretch our ears and figure out every single thing we could hear from the traffic on the highway to a little bird over there or a fly buzzing around or something like that. So that was very important. From there, playing around, experimenting with tape and just getting started and then meeting Jamie later and moving to San Francisco and then really being exposed to his record collection which had everything you could ever want 20th century and before you know he was coming home from the buying truck in this Berkeley music store every day with all the best albums in his hands you know? so <laughs> I got to hear a lot you've referred to Cage Steve Reich and Eno as sort of your holy trinity yeah kind of I mean, there were a lot of others, but this was three points of the golden triangle. But specifically, something that's interesting about Eno's music, and specifically the ambient music and the album Discrete Music, is 
Brian Eno doesn't consider himself a musician. I feel like that was manifested by that operational diagram on the back, how to create a tape loop. That was the diagram of Frippertronics, the feedback loops. And that was very important for me because I thought, oh, okay, I can do that. And I went to the junk store around the corner from our house and they had these two big old 40-pound portable Norelco flatbed Continental tape decks playing four speeds, $5 each, and a bunch of used tape, and that's what I got for $10, and started working with that, making loops and experimenting with feedback, trying different lengths and surfing the feedback and all that kind of stuff. So I worked on that for several years. That was an extremely fruitful period that yeah. we continue to hear today, right? Yeah. And you were also fascinated by the sound of San Francisco at the time. Yeah, San Francisco has an amazing ambient sound to it. It's something about the Seven Hills, the water, the fog, and then you have all of the creaking cable cars and the clicking electrical buses and fog horns and it's amazing ambient soup. Yeah. What about the ambience of L.A.? Well, it's different wherever you are, I think. I mean, here downtown, you know, you got a lot of sirens, probably a lot of helicopters. Uh, you got the airplanes going over, I, I just noticed. Where I live, we have a drone from planes going east about every three minutes, but it's not super low because they go out over the sea and they're coming up, but they're still gaining their altitude, so that. And then we have the Santa Monica Airport very near to where I live, which sometimes you see Harrison Ford's little yellow plane. Sounds like a lawnmower coming in when he's not crashing it on the golf course. And, uh, but I also have hummingbirds and squirrels and a lot of other little birds in my yard. I have a lot of flowers and things that they like, and I love seeing them. I love it when I have customers in the backyard. It's interesting. I was researching for this interview, and I found a bio that was printed, I believe, in late 2001, maybe early 2002. There have certainly been two chapters to your career. I feel like the first... 20 years were a struggle for recognition. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, that sucked. <laughs> 25 years, I think it was. But, you know, I learned how to run my own office and build my own house and cut hair and, you know, just about everything else you have to do to get by when you're freelancing and no one's buying you shit. So. <laughs> but you had fallen in with a community of freaks at Arcadia where, you know, you were creating your own world there and it, it seems like it was sort of outside capitalism and about larger concepts like beauty. Yeah, I'm always, you know, drawn to that. And uh, we were lucky at that time because we, you know, we had gotten a loft settlement from our first loft, but we fought for it. We didn't just get it. We, we had to fight with the other loft tenants in the downtown Brooklyn area for years to make these developers pay us something reasonable to get out so they could do what they wanted. And eventually they did. So instead of buying something like we should have, we rented a Baroque ruin in Northside Williamsburg full of pigeons and pigeon shit and, you know, restored it from top to bottom, spent a fortune. But I was able to put in my own studio, a little stage. Once we were done, it was so beautiful, we knew we had to share it with everybody. And, uh, and we started putting on shows. Let's put on a show, you know. So if any of you are going to New York in the next few months, you probably know about this already, but Anne Magnuson's Club 57 is in the Museum of Modern Art now, there's a show about what they did for three years from like 78 to 81 or something on St. Mark's Place in the basement of this Catholic church there. And 
It's a fantastic precursor to the Pyramid Club, to Arcadia, and lots of other stuff, that some of which is still going on in New York. But, yeah, it's harder now because everything is so expensive. It's interesting with Ann Magnuson specifically, like Club 57, on like a busy night, there would be 20 people there or something. But right? the coolest people in town, okay. You know, they're either dead or they're famous now. So, you know, or both. <laughs> and what was going on across the river? What was Williamsburg like at the time? A lot of juice well, shops. And, well, we uh, weren't there then. And we weren't there in 78. We were in San Francisco in 78. We, we moved to New York on April Fool's Day, 1980, the beginning of the two-week transit strike. There were no buses or subways. And we were staying in Westchester County with a friend of Jamie's. And we marched down to New York on April Fool's Day with our brand new rodeo heel cowboy boots and skinny black jeans to go down to New York and look for a loft in Soho. Well, <laughs> guess what? We walked all over that fucking city, got blisters out the wazoo, found out that, you know, we couldn't afford Soho already. And the things we saw in Tribeca, the landlords were already cutting the power to these people and trying to kick them out. And, you know, it was like, oh, nice. Anyway, the next day we got Converse All-Stars and Band-Aids and came back. And we wandered around New York for the whole time during that strike looking at places that we weren't going to get. And we went to the East Village, okay? Oh, my God. We got to Avenue A and we're like, how far is it? Well, you walk down and it's like, well, there's a burnout car and, you know, okay, well, it's just one. Then you get to Avenue B and it's like, oh, this is like, it looks like ants ate all the cars, you know, here, because they're all like down to skeletons and stuff. And then you get to Avenue C and Everything's either burnt down or burning. And it's like, what the fuck? So the place was between Avenue C and D, which was like, oh my God. It looks like, you know, Berlin after the war. And the place had the address spray painted on the brick facade. There were no windows or doors. It was like, okay, bye-bye, let's get out of here. And we ran all the way back to First Avenue, and we're like, okay, that's it. No East Village for us. No. no. And then we found this place in Brooklyn, you know, after walking all over Brooklyn. This place had been on the market and gone off, and then it came back because the guy who rented it wanted to divide it up into a bunch of little apartments, and the landlord found out about it and kicked him out and said, no, you can't do that. So we got it. And when we got it, all this aluminum studs and everything that he had bought to build all his walls were still in there. So all we had to do was go down to the hardware store downstairs and buy sheetrock and some tools and build our loft. Well, I was up there on either stilettos and hot pants or roller skates trying to screw in a piece of sheetrock in an aluminum stud with a screwdriver when, thank God, the drag queen neighbors from downstairs came up peeking through the window like, hey girl, that's not how you do that. <laughs> I'm an architect. <laughs> you gotta go downstairs and get you a drill, honey. <laughs> and the other one was Johnny Epperson, Lipsinka. So another tie-in to Ann Magnuson. Johnny and my friend uh, Skip Bowling lived downstairs and were our first Southern Queen friends we met in Brooklyn. And, and yeah, we, we had a lot of fun there for about almost nine or ten years and then ended up going to Arcadia in 89. That's when we moved to Williamsburg. Northside Williamsburg in 89 was a wasteland because it was all pretty much industrial. Those businesses had all left in late 70s. And these developers bought everything for $10, you know, the whole neighborhood, and, and brought in artists to fix it all up for them. You know, great commercial leases going up 5% a year, and yeah, you know, when it got to 10000 we had to leave. So. 
The James that you refer to is James Elaine, a uh, venerated artist in his own right, a visual artist, and you've always sort of congregated with a lot of visual artists and you view what you do as related to that, right? Yeah, um, you know, my first family of freaks were painters and artists, very good ones. Not very famous, but still extremely good artists, still working, still managed to survive. Jamie became world-renowned for his eye as a curator of emerging art. And once the art world realizes you're a golden goose that lays golden eggs, they, don't, they forget you're an artist. So, you know, they just want to know where your next Kara Walker and all these other people he discovered come from. Because they can all run off and make money and have a good time. <laughs> but anyway, that sounds bitter, but I'm not bitter. <laughs> well, what were you doing at the time? He had your fascination with loops was ongoing, and a lot of times you were playing saxophone over loops that you had made, and you had also discovered the radio station that broadcasted from the top of the Empire State Building. Well, we couldn't help discovering that because even if, I mean, we had this big 5,000 square foot loft. We ran wires all around it for speakers and stuff. You could hear the music in your fillings, you know. You didn't need to tune in to WCBS. It was the top of the Empire State Building. It was the strongest channel in the world. And you would hear those high thousand and one strings just everywhere, and I loved it. And I always wanted a Mellotron, and I couldn't afford one, so I thought, well, maybe I can make my own Mellotron, you know. So I would put it on the station and make a bunch of different loops, and put them on the high speed and wait till a cool string interlude or something was happening where it's no, well, there wasn't much percussion, but you might get a few oohs and ahs, but you know, you didn't have to worry about syncopation because they took all that out. Yeah, I'd try to get the string interludes and stuff and then slow them down and see what's under there. And it was suddenly, you know, from this, Muzak was the Prozac of the 70s, you know. Well, once you turn that down to speeds, it's deep well of melancholy. <laughs> so that's what I discovered, and uh, that's what I liked. And so I started, I made a lot of patches, shall we say, for my Mellotron, you know. My uh, Melancholitron, I should call it. <laughs> Those recordings, shortwave, that sort of became the basis of your first official LP release on Noten, right? Yeah. Carson heard that when he was living downstairs from us in the Arcadia building with our German neighbors. And they always had a room for guests. And, you know, Carson was, I think it was his first time in New York. He had a residency at PS1. And... Uh, we hit it off. I was, had just pulled out, I'd just gotten, I think, a DAT machine or a CD burner or something when they first came out. And I was, I just found these big old cases of old stuff that I hadn't been listening to in a long time in the land that time forgot, we called it. The, we had a 400 square foot storage room, okay? I mean, it's like half the size of this room. Full of paintings and sculptures and weird shit and old shit and just you name it. Anyway, I had started uh, pulling out this stuff and archiving it because I knew tape disintegrates. And, you know, like I told you earlier, I, I started with, you know, probably 10 or 15-year-old used tape to begin with. Karsten heard shortwave music from downstairs and comes up going, what's that? We all know he has a great ear. I'm like, oh, this is, you know, some of my early work, I'm just archiving it and stuff. He's like, so he thought about it, and then he was like, Billy, do you want to release a record? And I was like, I've been waiting to hear that for 20 years. <laughs> Hell yeah. So they did, and they did that beautiful clear vinyl with the clear cover release, and only 600 copies, and you know, a bunch of them had smears of color in them because they didn't clean the presses properly, and they didn't release those. Those are the ones I got. And also, when they first were showing me the artwork and everything, I loved it, but I was like, but Karsten, the title is shortwave music, not shortwave pieces. Can you like, you know, 
change the sticker. He's like, it's not a sticker. We printed it on the plastic. I'm like, oh, too bad, honey. <laughs> so they had, to, they had to reprint all the, the covers. So my pay for that was I got like 20 copies of the swirly ones with the misprinted covers. But I sold those for $300 each, honey. <laughs> you know, if you have one of those, it's a rare item. They aren't around. I don't know what they go for. I don't watch Discogs or anything, but they're pretty rare. Was that like an immediate life-changing? It didn't do anything. I mean, for me, it, it was wonderful. When that came out, I had my shop, Ladybird. This is before I had email or anything. It's about 97, maybe, or something. 98, I can't remember. I don't know how I heard it came out. Maybe he wrote me a letter or something. But I went down to Earwax, which was the record store down the street on Bedford and North 7th, and they had a copy. And I was like, oh my God, there's my record. $11? That's so cheap for an import. How am I going to make any money? He's like, you're not, honey. <laughs> well, at least I can afford it. So I bought it. And I uh, took it back to my shop, and in the shop I had this big old early 60s console tube amp stereo, you know, system. And I think it was like a late summer day, really pretty. That I had the doors open and listening to it. It sounded great. And my friend Scott Mao, who's just a darling and fabulous DJ in New York now. He worked at uh, other music for years, and he, he also plays in Panthu de Prince. And I get to see him occasionally on the road as a surprise. It's so great. But he came in going, what's that? I said, oh, it's my new record. And he's a record collector. And he's like, oh, cool, what is it? I said, it's my new record. Yeah, but what is it? I'm like, well... It's called shortwave music. I made it. Wow! <laughs> so we sat there and listened to it and tripped out. And um, I think they ordered some copies of other music. Scott's a, uh, an angel of unappreciated record. Yeah. But then uh, a few years later, odd fate intervened. And then things really changed for everybody. Yeah. I know you've been over it a lot of times before, but uh, do you want to tell us about that fateful day. Oh, God. Let's talk about that year. You know, interesting parallel to this year, in a way, for a lot of you young people that were too young to remember 2001, the beginning of the 21st century. We had a, a president whose election was disputed and he wasn't actually elected. He was appointed by the Supreme Court. Highly crazy move. People were outraged. Everyone was completely freaked out about the whole thing and no one could talk about anything except the stolen election until they fucking took down the whole fucking World Trade Center. And then here comes George Bush with a you know, cheerleader you know, megaphone and all the war people got real happy because basically, was the beginning of the disintegration loops, shall we say, and they're still going on. So that August, I had, you know, I had closed my shop at the beginning of 2001 because it was going to get more expensive. No one was getting it. You know, at that time, it was like there were these Ohio kids coming around in, in, in you know, dockers and stuff. And it's like, where are all my... Cool. I mean, my buddies down the street were in Interpol, and they had a shop, and we would trade clothes, and you know. So there were a few great people, but it wasn't enough to. And I was getting sick of it because when you have your own shop, you're like a psychiatrist for crazy ladies that have nothing to do. <laughs> you know, the doctor is in. You're stuck behind the counter, and they come in and. Oh my God, it's insanity. So. You know, I realized I've got to get out of here. I'm either going to be an old drunk, you know, that won't let anyone in the shop, or I'm going to have to be willing to lose my house to, uh, you know, put all my energy into my music 
And I almost did lose my house. I got an eviction notice on 9-11 on top of everything else. But somehow through some angels, that went away. So, but in this, you know, it was this summer of 2001, late July, beautiful sunny day. I hadn't had the store for, you know, six months. I had had one kind of location pretty well-paying location job with the loft, which we used to get a lot more of, but then it started dwindling down. But anyway, we had one in May, which enabled me to, you know, catch up on my rent and buy my first laptop and, you know, start being able to do email and stuff. But by August, it was really dry, and I didn't know what to do. And But it was beautiful, and I'm sitting in the sun in my bedroom reading this Alan Watts little beautiful turquoise book, the Way of Zen, and it's a very short little book. It's just wonderful, as he always is. And I realized, dumbass, get off your... You've got time. Go get back in the studio, pick up where you left off, start archiving the work. You have time. Do your work. Show up for fucking work, okay? So I did. I went in there, and I pulled the first loop up off this boom stand that I had lined up and put it on the Nagra and turned it on, and it was that grave, beautiful theme from Disintegration Loop 1.1. And I thought, oh, yes, this is what I need right now. This is great. I didn't even remember it. Some of the loops that I made in the old days, I knew were perfect by themselves. They didn't need me to do anything to them, but I didn't know if I could consider that my work or not, you know, at the time. So I would put them aside because I wanted to be involved in mixing and doing things and stuff. So anyway, this group of these loops that were on the other side of this dead plane tree that I had in my yard, it was like a, I mean, in my uh, studio, it was like a big brain and I would hang things in areas. And, well, that area was the disintegration loop area. And they all came up in a period of two days. And I, for the first one, I'm making a new piece. I made a beautiful... French horn-like counter melody randomly arpeggiating on the Voyetra synthesizer and started recording. And then, you know, 15 minutes in, I started to realize, wait a minute, something's changing here. And I looked and I could see, you know, drop out and dust falling off the tape into the tape path. So I thought, uh-oh, recording? Yes. Okay, let's see what happens. And, well, if you've heard it, you know what happened the melody died in its own beautiful way with sort of the sustains and the delays just being left behind and the attacks and what sort of makes the melody its own core entity kind of tried to hang on till the very end. Put on the next one. Oh, amazing. Okay. Another kind of melody. La, la, la. Well, went to get a cup of coffee, come back, it's already starting to decay. I'm like, wait a minute, this is crazy. I don't need counter melodies here. I need to stay out of the way. I've got to let this stuff do what it wants to do, pay attention, just make sure I'm recording and getting a good level. So after that, I just let the work happen. And then after two days, I'm calling everyone going, get over here, you won't believe what happened. And my friend Howard Schwartzberg, who's a fabulous artist from New York, um, Fabulous human being, teaches children in underprivileged schools art. He is amazing. He's a really good artist. He's from Coney Island. So he's got this amazing Coney Island accent. He's like, Billy, you've done it. This is it. <laughs> he was right. I mean, I knew he was right, but I didn't know why. But he did, because he studied deconstructionism and all this sort of stuff that I had never studied, you know. So he knew why it was right, and he was right. And boy, did the critics have something to dig their teeth into. So, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do with a five-hour piece. I couldn't afford to put out a box set. No one even knew who I was. So I decided, okay, I'll put put out one CD, add some more on the credit card, you know, and do one at a time. So that's what I did, and it, it took off. Towards the completion of the piece, 
you were on your rooftop. And now the pieces were done. But buy the CD, you can read the liner notes, and you'll get the real story. Not some telephone story by journalists that gets told over and over and over again. It's not true. Okay, fake news. <laughs> Sorry. Buy the CD. I wrote the liner notes. Yeah, and it's true. No. 9-11, I was supposed to, the night before, it's interesting, there was a huge hurricane off the coast of New York on September 10th. There was a massive thunderstorm in Brooklyn that evening. And I had gone to the grocery store to get some food and beer or something, and all of a sudden, all hell broke loose. And I was terrified because I had my brand new Apple laptop. I didn't know, I knew it was plugged in, I didn't know if it was gonna be destroyed or what, you know, but lightning hit our building, I think, you know, the water tower or something, and I came home like, oh. luckily it was okay. I was looking online for jobs. There was a job for an administrative assistant for Creative Time, who had, at that time, their offices on one of the top floors of the World Trade Center. Now, those buildings were never completely full. So they let Creative Time have a, a floor or two, and they, there was an artist there that, that had an installation in there. I don't remember his name, but his work involved like sculptures of him with planes crashing into him. And he'd had a, a party there that night, and he stayed over, unfortunately. By the time I woke up on September 11th, I mean, art institution job interviews aren't at eight o'clock in the morning, thank God. So, you know, by the time I got up, the World Trade Towers were both on fire, and I could see them from my bedroom. My friends banging on the door, belly, 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 belly. We ran upstairs when the top of the South Tower collapsed and just sat there in shock and awe, watching like what is impossible happen in front of us on this crystal clear blue day. And then the second tower just went down in slow motion like a sinking ship. It was just, I mean, this doesn't happen. It's, it's against the laws of physics. So I don't believe the official story. And um, I never have. Since then, 1.1 specifically, as well as 1.2, the whole box set have become associated with the way that people process that event the pieces in the 9-11 Museum with the photography that you took. The video. The video. And it was also performed on the 10th anniversary, correct? Yes, that was the first orchestral performance by the Wordless Music Orchestra in um, the Temple of Dandur at the Metropolitan Museum on the 10th anniversary, and it was incredible. There was 800 people there. 400 couldn't get in. By the end of the piece, and they did such a beautiful job, this audience, and there were children and old people there. It was as if we were all turned to stone like Isis and Osiris, three minutes of silence. And then this plane went by, picking up the F drone of the last note and faded off, and I just, my hair all stood on end, and I thought, oh my God, what's gonna happen now? And then everyone just erupted into applause, so it was, it was incredible. And since then, you know, on albums like Nocturnes, you've made your own loops on piano. You've been quite prolific since 2002. Yeah, I've been trying to, you know, put out at least one record a year. In the earlier parts, sometimes I would put out a new one and an archival one when I had more energy and time before the touring got so extensive. Now I'm getting old and tired, and I just do the best I can, but um, a lot of touring, which is great, but tiring. I saw you play a Sparkle Division last year at the Broad, and... Um, you saw that? Yeah, yeah. And there's also, like, uh, you've become a fan of newer artists, like Jay Lynn. Mm -hmm. That's where we met Jay Lynn, yeah. What's some other new music that you're into? Well, I love your girlfriend. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> She's, she blew my mind, Jessica. We got invited to, um, is it Devendra Banhart invited us? Yeah. So we all got to meet and hear each other's performances, which is so rare. 
And it was super sweet, short love fest, but um, yeah, very fabulous. I meet people on the road now, so that's nice. And uh, you know, Liz Harris from Grouper is a dear friend now, and I just love what she does. And uh, oh, it's hard for me to list all my, I mean, you know, like I said, I don't really get a chance to listen to music. I don't have time to listen to music. I'm not a consumer of music. I never was. But people turn me on to stuff, and so sometimes I get to discover something I like. I was thinking about Liz's record, Ruins, prior to this interview, and how you both sort of strike that somber tone. And a, a lot of times it seems like you're attracted to ruins and you're able to. She's more melancholy than me, bless her heart. Very <laughs> sensitive, darling creature. We're both cancers. So, you know, there's a watery murk there that you have to be careful about. So what's next? Quicksand. <laughs> No, what's next? Hopefully not quicksand. Well, I'm going to Brazil on Tuesday to do a play in a big, beautiful church for a festival in um, Rio, where I've never been before. So that'll be the last show this year, and then I'll come home on the 10th, I think, and try to rest for a few weeks over the holidays, and then I have one more tour in January in Europe again with a new piece called On Time, Out of Time, which came out of some work that some very dear friends of mine were doing with the scientists at the LIGO Center, the ones who discovered the gravitational waves through sound. So this is a, a very romantic extrapolation on that, which will be the next record. I have to have some time off to produce the record and get it out and stuff. But as usual, I'm already touring it before it even comes out. So I do everything backwards. Well, thank you so much for taking time with in between tours to speak with us. And thank you for your contributions to music as well. Really appreciate you being here with us today, William. Thank you so much, Matt. It's a great pleasure to be here with all of you and thank you for your great questions. Thanks everyone.